Hello, welcome back to Why Did Peter Sink? This is part four of the series titled About Uranus. So a lot of this might sound like I'm pulling this out of thin air, but this story is told not only in Genesis, but in all of the surrounding mythologies of the ancient world. They tell the same story, but from a different viewpoint. The myths written by the surrounding cultures are telling the story from the other side. Star Wars is told from the perspective of the Rebel Alliance, but the Empire's tale would make them the righteous protector of freedom, obviously. Lord of the Rings is told from the vantage point of hobbits and elves and, and men, but the orcs would tell a completely different tale. That is what is happening in the mythology around the world of Abraham. The Bible is telling one story and the myths are telling the other. The mythologies have rejected the idea of one God and believe that this the righteous state um, is this version of progress that they are living in. Um, this is all over the place. In myth after myth, the heroes are the ones that kill off the primordial creators and gods. The initial gods, such as um, Uranus, Osiris, and Anu, are all killed off by their children, as if this is just normal. That's the expected state of things. The slaying of the higher Older gods is told as a story of progress, in a sense. The Bible is a book making a very different argument. The book is telling us that the Most High God should still be the ruler of all, um, that there was no rebellion, or if it was, it was like, like I said, like a mosquito, and he got slapped. Um, the world all around Abraham is polytheistic and is thus turned away from the one God. So in the mythologies, it was not the devil that was kicked off the patio in heaven, it was the one God. The rebellion and overthrow of the original gods by a child god is where the disconnect happens. In Star Wars, we enter a world in the middle of history, which is a, a thing that happens in every epic uh, story. You start in the middle. Uh, Luke Skywalker overthrows his father, Darth Vader, which is a play on Dark Father. Um, and the Jedis are these uh, ancient worshippers of a mysterious, certain, unknown thing called the Force, a power greater than any god or man or any any uh, Jedi or Sith even. It's like that's beyond them. Um, the Jedis are considered fools for following an ancient religion, and Luke has come to restore order through the power of the Force. The rebel alliance of Luke and the ragtag X-Wing fighters is the people who are set apart from the rest. That's what they are. They're rebels. Um, the real rebellion is that of the Sith who have overtaken the world thinking they have deposed or, or overridden the force. But guess what? Guess what, Darth? Um, you can't depose, you can't overtake the force. He's using it, but he's using it for the, the wrong reasons. Um, his, so your reign is temporary because the real power is what will be restored through a savior. And so everybody's looking for a savior. The rescue mission is on its way. Luke destroys evil and, or, and restores the, the world, the universe, to like a healthy state. There's a power greater than the Sith or the Jedi or Luke or Obi-Wan Kenobi, and that's the Force. Uh, Star Wars has the elements of Abraham against the world, and it has the elements of the opposition like that of the pagan cultures around Abraham. And this is why it's a great story. These two things cannot coexist. The, the Alliance and the Empire cannot coexist, and they must war against each other. So the conflict happens naturally. Um, in the surrounding cultures of Abraham, the Sumerian gods have slain the top god. It's done. The deal, that deed is done. And the Mesopotamian leaders believe that the rightly ordered world is many gods. So leaders who govern 
with solid explanations in place would be insane to shake up the game board. Um, even false gods need to have a good backstory, otherwise people will go insane. Uh, and Abraham cannot play that game, though, because he knows it's not real. Um, he's like the boy in the emperor's new clothes, where everyone is pretending the false gods matter, and Abraham can't stand it and must speak up and say, the emperor has no clothes. So Abraham is the one who shakes up the game board. Um, you can blame him. But the rightly ordered world, uh, according to the Bible, is one God, not these pretend ones. So these two positions cannot abide together peacefully unless one of the positions is abandoned. Um, there are irreconcilable differences between these worldviews as what grows from these foundations is, is two radically different ways of life and understanding of the world we live in. One thing you can see for sure, however, through both worldviews is that human beings are incurably religious. We just are. And we are today as much as we were then, even though we may not have um, shrines to uh, idols and things. But we, we, we do, we do, um, again, for another episode. But um, the reason why we can't see the big picture is because We've been living in Christendom for so long that we have forgotten the tales of the other cultures that surrounded Abraham. Um, when I say we, I mean like living in America or, or the West, as we call it. We don't even know what it means to not live in a sort of Christianized society or at least a bit one based on Christian ideas. Uh, in fact, our equality and social justice motives spring directly from Christian ideas, not from mythological systems. There is no celebration of selflessness in uh, Greek mythology, uh, aside from a few minor gods and goddesses, but it is not the central force or the central idea. Um, <laughs> there, there is an idea of sacrifice and ascendancy um, and victory, but not of humility, and especially not humility without some kind of reward. So um, in mythology, dogs don't do tricks unless they get the treat. We have the script so close to our noses today that we can't even read it. We think a lot of the things that we, we just take for granted have always been here, but they haven't. We know the lines by heart, so we can fudge it and maybe we get some details wrong, but the widely accepted dogmas around love and human dignity and charity did not come from Uranus. They did not come from that world. Peace and love most definitely did not come from a world governed by Zeus. Zeus was like Jeffrey Epstein in terms of showing us how to live. The mythological systems show no respect for the weak or the frail or the poor. They celebrated power, not gentleness. They wanted to win, not surrender. The mythological gods were prayed to like NFL coaches who were to provide a game plan to bring victory. They represented strength, not peace and love, uh, not servitude. Um, not going into servant mode, uh, peace. That was that was for suckers. Like Zeus, are you are you kidding me? Like no, you he went to win. You know there wasn't anything like that. Um, the chosen people were thus chosen, as I've said, by their choice. But it's important to keep in mind that the chosen people. Um, that does not mean that they were themselves God, um, or 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 that Jesus uh, was an equivalent of the chosen people. Um, they were keepers of the flame. The chosen people were these keepers of the flame. They, to keep a flame alive requires um, like guardianship. It means 
it might mean violence and bloodshed. And you can see that it does. If you read the book of Judges, it's all over. Or um, Kings or Chronicles or whatever. But Which is exactly why people freak out reading the Old Testament, especially people who have been living comfortably in the Pax Americana for the last, what, 100 years. We just have no idea what it means to really have to fight for what we have. We have no idea how hard it is to keep a candle lit um, amid the, like a storm. Um, it's, it's very difficult. And, and we, we get shocked when the old world rears up its head. Someone recently said to me um, they couldn't believe that Russia had invaded Ukraine, that there was a war going on in the, the West, if you call it that. And I said, I said, you're surprised by that. And they said they were surprised. And I said, I was not surprised at all. I think I've actually we've been living through this huge area era of peace, which is not the norm. And unfortunately, now we have much more deadly weapons. Um, so everything we always think is great progress technology in this. Of course, it always goes back into building better weapons. So I'm not surprised that there's a war. Um, you know, to keep peace is hard, and especially for human beings that are not interested in that. If you are interested in victory and power over humility and service, then yes, you're going to fight. So yeah, the idea of a chosen people seems bizarre to us. And I used to, under, I used to wonder, why couldn't the Egyptians be the chosen people? Or why couldn't it be the Amalekites? Or why couldn't it be the Hittites or the Canaanites? But that's the whole point. The other people, the other people living in that time could not be the chosen people of the one God because the other people have already thrown that idea away long ago in a galaxy far away. The other peoples are telling the story of Darth Vader, who is like Zeus. They have not chosen one creator God uh, like the Force. They have chosen these sub-gods. They're, they're, they want power, wealth, pleasure, all of those things. They're not... Um, trying to just be humble before the Creator God. So since there's only one group of people that worship the one true God, this is the nation of Israel, the description of them as choosing each other makes total sense. Um, this is another one of these revelations that felt like a club over my head. Uh, rather than looking at this question from my through my 21st century eyes, you have to look at this story from their perspective, just as you have to look at the Greek heroes through Greek eyes. Uh, the story of Abraham was written around 1500 BC, and Abraham lived, we think, around 1800 or 1600 BC. Um, but by choosing to believe in one God, he took a direct step against the grain. He started swimming upstream. Whatever metaphor you struggle for struggle you like, that is what happened. And so the covenant between his people and the one God becomes plain to see. He will not leave God, even if the whole world hates him. God will not leave Abraham, even if the whole world rejects God. So they have each other. They are alone, but they are together. God uses the people, and they lean back on God like Forrest Gump and Bubba in the rain in the Vietnam mud. And here's what Bubba said to Forrest, and this is a good um, metaphor example for what the one God and the chosen people are doing. Bubba says to Forrest, I'm going to lean up against you. You just lean right back against me. This way, we don't have to sleep with our heads in the mud. You know why we a good partnership for us? Because we be watching out for one another like brothers and stuff. So God and Abraham's people are Forrest and Bubba. They're, they're like bro brothers and stuff. 
suffering the slings and arrows of the universe and the world. Except in this case, for it's more like the father and his children, or the shepherd and his sheep. So it's not quite like brothers and stuff, but you get the idea. Um, the Egyptians and the Hittites and the Canaanites, all these uh, ites of the old world, they cannot be the chosen people of the one God because they have abandoned the one true God, the most high God, the God that we think of as this monotheistic God. And how do I know this? Um, well, assuming I'm not crazy, as I'm sure some family and friends have assumed by now, uh, this wasn't some kind of private revelation that I had um, where I'm pretending that something woke me and spoke to me in the night like young Samuel um, in the Bible. No, um, I'm not having some kind of experience to realize this aside from just reading <laughs> the Bible and the mythology. Um, this is all public domain material. I didn't go to some grotto and hear a voice. I didn't have a dream. I just read the books that are there. The stories practically shout the situation that Abraham was in when the whole journey toward Jesus begins. The story of these other cultures clearly tell the story of their turning away from the idea of one God. Um, the, the myths of Egypt and Greece literally tell the story of how the original deity was overthrown by sub-gods and the monotheistic God of old was removed from power. And if you believe that the stories were written to reflect the culture, then that is what the writers are telling us. There are no accidents in Hollywood. That's the saying. There are no accidents in Hollywood and there are no accidents in propaganda, um, which is actually like saying the same thing because um, Hollywood propaganda, you could just say, switch those words out of that sentence and say there are no accidents in either one. The idea of one God was abandoned, which is why they write about the many gods to prove their point. They're, they're, they claim to have it correct. The mythology writers believe their worldview is right. Um, their argument is no different from modern people who say the same thing. Um, there's a lot of people saying today that like God is dead, uh, or you see this Time magazine had a famous cover, or uh, 19th or was it 19th century Germans were all over this, and um, of course though they are as wrong today as they were 4,000 years ago. Uh, God is not dead. That's just people who would like him to not exist or or go away, and good luck with that. So this is exactly why the Bible is so different from any other book of the ancient world. It's why the readings and lessons are so strange to us as well. Israel is telling the story that no one else is telling. The difference in storytelling alone shows how different a people must be to remain faithful to a single God versus many gods. They are, to put it crudely, they're the weirdos of the ancient world. And Christians join them in that weirdness and, and restored the one God in the mind of human beings to its former glory because it broke out of just this one group of people into the whole world. That was the point of the covenant of Abraham was to make it go to all people. So it starts out as like a seed and then it grows into this or an acorn. It becomes an oak tree. Um, so I hope that makes sense. The Christian story in a nutshell is the victory over this lie that God is dead. Uh, like Pontius Pilate kind of assumed, believes God is dead. Um, Jesus is telling him, no, he's not. And I am, I am God. So the life of Christ is the reassertion that the one true God is real. And the resurrection is the proof that all other gods are false. So for some reason, it takes a long time. It takes a long time to tell the story, at least in how we see time, uh, for this to play out. I mean, it's a lot of reading. Uh, people don't even read books much anymore. So it's, 
um, who's going to read from Genesis to Revelation and try to make sense of all this. Uh, it's, it's, uh, we wish it was short. We want it to be short and easy, like a, uh, maybe God could have just sent out an email and explained it all. But, um, you know, people ask, why couldn't God just tell us this and send a great sign? Uh, this is this is something that comes up a lot. Like, why isn't it simpler? Why isn't it more simple? Uh, but here's the funny thing is that he did. He did do that. Um, in fact, the parable of the rich man and Lazarus is this exact question and response uh, from people who say, why couldn't, have, why couldn't God have just sent us a sign? And so that parable of the rich man and Lazarus, um, we could talk about, I could talk about for hours probably, but the point here is that Jesus says that the signs have been sent. They were sent. Um, they have been sent repeatedly and they were ignored. So what good is another sign going to do? In fact, that's why Jesus is here, because we ignore all the prior signs. So, that, so what sign was going to get the message across? Um, those who choose not to believe will choose not to believe whether there is a sign or not. So when you are turned inward... Um, turned inward or to say turned away from God, you, you cannot believe because you refuse to ask for faith. When you are spiritually blind, you wouldn't even see a flashing billboard advertising free beer with your name on it and a humongous arrow blinking. And so the rich man in hell in the parable, he's, he's down in hell. You know, he didn't make any changes in his life. And then he asks, why wasn't there a sign? <laughs> and interestingly enough, the speaker from heaven in this parable is none other than Abraham himself, which is just so perfect. Um, this parable just blows my mind literally, literarily and spiritually uh, because Abraham tells the rich man in hell that he ignored all the signs and that if, if they will not listen to Moses and the prophets, then neither, neither will they be persuaded if someone should rise from the dead. Um, <clears throat> there's this, the parable itself is alluding to the resurrection of Jesus. Of course, um, it's also, um, there's just a lot going on in this. It, the parable surprises in so many ways that it could probably be a future episode all of its own. So I'm not going to go too far into it, but there's just a, one other thing is the rich man in hell, um, isn't even asking to get out of hell. He's asking for his servant to come down Lazarus and serve him <laughs> while he's there because he still doesn't get the fact that um, his way of life is wrong. He's still like, uh, can you send Lazarus down to give me a drink of water, please? Because um, he still like thinks Lazarus is his slave. Um, of course, Lazarus is going to heaven. So, you know, it's anyway, a lot going on there. Uh, kind of like, it's kind of like the great divorce in a way by C.S. Lewis, where people choose to stay in hell. And that's what the rich man does. But he said the best part of the parable is that why wasn't there a sign? It's like, well, there was about a thousand of them. You just weren't looking. And that's what we do. We don't look for them. We have to change our ways and look for them. Um, so one thing to keep in mind is that through all of this turning away by people like the rich man or whoever, that God doesn't lose any power or glory because we turn away. He's no less because people just didn't give him the glory and honor. No, it's the people that have become fooled into trading the ultimate being God for the entertainment of this, of a false object or a fallen spirit that's like taken over them. Um, they are, those people turned away They're They're if in the old world, they'd be praying to these dolls and dummies, uh, and expecting miracles or statues, whatever. 
Um, I'm sorry to say that I have prayed for free throws to be made in basketball games. Um, so uh, I'm guilty of these things myself. Uh, and I, I even sent um, my prayer to the one God, you know, so I'm thinking, um, God, please let this player make this free throw. And in reality, I was praying for a basketball God to exist. And I fell for the most classic error in worship, which is to ask for something other than God's will to be done. So um, you have to pray for God's will, not my will. That's how you pray. <laughs> um, and I'm not sure, I'm not sure a lot of people know that. I guess I'm not sure I knew it. But um, in fact, if I pray for anything other than God's will to be done, then I need to go back and study the Lord's Prayer because I've clearly forgotten that it doesn't mention anything about getting what I want, in especially a free throw to be made. And really, really, why on earth would my prayer be for an orange ball to go through a metal ring? You know, we've lost our minds when that's the type of prayer that comes from our heart because that is the entry point for false gods to insinuate themselves into our lives. That is where they get a hold of you as soon as you think that's how it works. Um, the density of Genesis um, is, is really profound. And in chapters 1 through 11, it's so thick that um, that's why everybody reads that repeatedly and argue about it. Um, Genesis was written about 1500 BC, it's thought. And that seems like long ago, but 3,500 years ago is not that deep into human oral history. And in God's time, that would be a blink. I mean, even in scientific terms of how old the universe is or the earth, you know, you're talking billions of years. And they always say if you had a 24-hour clock and you played that clock for all of history up until this point, the last like milliseconds would be us. Um, so that's, that's something to think about is that the amount of time we're looking at here saying Genesis was written 3,500 years ago, that is like a blink to God or um, to um the one true God, because if he's the creator, um, that time to him may be very little or nothing, or we don't know how time, I don't know. I'm not going to go there. It's too much for me. Um, the ideas in Genesis, however, what my point here is, is that the ideas that are in the book of Genesis did not suddenly spring into being in 1500 BC when it was written down. It's not like some ancient Shakespeare just happened to come up with all these stories. Uh, these were oral traditions of people uh, long before the sacred writer took up a pen. So they were just written down on paper. You know, there was like technology to do that. There was language, you had to get language, you had to get um, the ability to write uh, <laughs> something to write with, something to write on, uh, somehow a way to preserve that. So of course it was being preserved for much longer than that before it was written. So from the beginning of the story of Genesis in the first sentence, the reason the Israelites are so different is because they reject the idea of a heavenly rebellion that succeeded. And from that first line, the opening line, they refuse to adopt, um, you know, well, once you get to Abraham, they refuse to adopt a worldview that conflicts with this truth. So the hard thing about truth is that only one argument can be true, as there is no really no such thing as my truth and your truth, as we like to say today. So either there is one creator God of the universe or there is not. Either there is one God, um, no God, or many gods. And only one of those can be true. And you have to choose. You have to choose. And you do choose even if you say you don't. 
so if you choose many gods, then either Zeus um, or something like him sits on Mount Olympus uh, or he doesn't. So if you've chosen that, this idea of uh, like these mythological systems, then you have to choose between that. Um, we actually have subtle uh, gods today. But let's say you choose the, the old system. Let's just stick with that. So if you think, if you say you have to decide, did Zeus sit on Mount Olympus or not? Um, and you'd say yes or no. So maybe you say yes. Um, then you could drive a few hours away and you have to ask the same question. Um, did Marduk exist? Uh, did Osiris exist? You have to, you know, you can go to Egypt. Um, you, can, you can go to the Norse gods. Uh, you have to do this with all these gods because there's so many of them. So you start to say, well, yes, okay, I believe in Zeus, but I don't believe in this one and I don't believe in that one. So, you know, it gets really um, repetitive. You'd have to do this a lot. You'd have to go and ask these same questions for every culture in the world. You'd have to come to Native American tribes, Hawaiian, all of those places because they have their own mythologies. And um, that's why it's so easy to honestly to throw all of these these gods out of mythology and then um, what people will do then is declare all gods to be fake so the argument that atheists and agnostic use today is i just believe in one less god than you do uh, because the modern non-believer uh, <laughs> some of them especially like it's more i think um uh new atheists or agnostics they've fully rejected the idea that there are many gods that's that's what um everyone knows the mythology is made up and so have i i mean i have as well i'm of course we're in total agreement um, some people think they have rejected the many god world but if they're into astrology or divination or that kind of thing or, um, uh, then they really haven't rejected this idea if they actually believe in astrology or or some of these other new age religions then you're still in this um the many gods world so if you believe in crystals or like reiki or your witch witches then you believe in in gods lowercase g so you have chosen and what you've chosen is not the one god of christianity and judaism so but for those who reject the idea of gods altogether um that's for like straight up materialist um people who are don't believe in any of that they they should pause and ask themselves about the one god first um because this is different than the many gods so either same question goes either one god exists or does not exist and the question is not about zeus or the flying spaghetti monster that occupy this world um, and universe the this the question of whether there is one god is about what existed before everything and created everything before the chaos before the empty space and this is where we tend to argue today i think and you can argue forever if you like on this question uh, but only one answer can be true obviously which makes it a very high stakes game of roulette for those who put their chips into play and we all have to play this game whether we like it or not and no matter how long we stand in the shadows trying to bide our time or hide in the corner um, the chips must be played so the choice here is whether you believe that we are nothing but material pure chemistry and physics or if there is the possibility of a soul so you can believe in a soul if you believe in many gods, but you cannot believe in a soul if you reject the one God and the many gods. If you choose that there are neither gods, neither the many gods, nor the one God, 
you don't get to have a soul. You can't have the cake and also eat it. So if you believe in a soul, you have chosen one God or many gods. So you, you have to walk through these questions and, and consider these things. We can't wish the questions away because they raise the deepest concerns of our lives, which is to extract meaning and purpose. Um, is all we got is our measly senses. You know, we have our, our, the days of our lives, the experiences, our education, and most importantly, our hearts. Uh, these are high stakes questions. So naturally, we don't want to bet too brashly or recklessly. Uh, people try to hedge their bets on this, but you can't hedge your bets. You can't play partially because your life here and hereafter is what's at stake on the table. So that's why this game rouses anger and strong feelings because we know that choosing incorrectly is can lead to a disaster. And if I'm wrong, my whole world and what I hold to be most meaningful falls to pieces. Essentially, if I'm wrong, I'm a fool. And that's what St. Paul uh, says. He says, well, I'm the most pity pitiable of all people if my faith is in vain, you know, if Jesus didn't rise. But anyway, the choice of choosing the one God requires leaning into the void and looking at the mystery and opting to allow for the mystery. The reason faith is so hard to ask for is because it requires giving up control and knowledge. Uh, you can't achieve faith. You can't Google it. You can't order it. You can't even work for it like money or fitness. You have to ask for it. And who likes to ask for anything today? Um, who wants to be weak or needy or vulnerable or exposed? Um, that's where the bet must be placed. And it's, it's like on a razor blade where you, your choice cannot be split. It must go one way or the other. And if you are down to the decision of whether to have faith or not have faith, you have to choose God or yourself. Because if there's no God, then the only person who can save you is yourself. And if there's no God, then the only person who can give your life meaning is yourself. And that is exhausting. That is exhausting. I don't know if you felt it um, for non-believers, but having spent, spent years like that, um, always searching, trying to find the meaning, find, trying to explain this, reading this, looking for that, it's exhausting to uh, try to get achievements and understanding so that everything makes sense. So it's a very big bet to place. But you, you have to place it before you die because your chips will go back to the house if you don't play and that the house uh, falls back into the like non-believer mode. So if you answer no to the question of uh, the one true God, then you can stop playing now. Um, the rest of the quiz doesn't apply. You can proceed over to the bar and buffet area and the um, it's, a, it's, it's a casino so it never closes. You can go wild. Go uh, eat all you want and get drunk. Have fun. Okay. Uh, for the rest of you, if you answer yes to the idea of one God, you have to play further. So you're not done. You're not done after the question of God. There's another decision tree that must be traversed. If you bet that there is one true God, then you have to consider a follow-up question, which is every bit as high stakes as the one before it was. The next question is this, did Jesus rise from the dead? Uh, you could ask a slightly different one. You could ask, was God incarnated as a human and did he live among us? That would be um, another question. But I think the better question that gets to the heart of the matter real fast is the one about the resurrection. Because um, this is where we waffle. This is where we are sort of not sure today. And I think it's, it's, um, 
is where we make the choice of whether Jesus was a teacher or whether he was God. Um, there's no better place to ponder or loiter than at the tomb itself, because this is like where the light switches that you either turn it on or off. And if you turn it off, if you bet against the resurrection, then Jesus was a teacher. He becomes an ordinary man. Um, in fact, he becomes quite an insane ordinary man for the things he was saying. If he was just a teacher, having made some, uh, you know, some good stories and stuff, but he's crazy if that's the case, because um, if he's an ordinary man and saying he's God, then um, that's that's the height of insanity. But so if you say no to the resurrection, you can also proceed to the bar and the buffet as well. And uh, here's some coupons. Go have fun. You can just, uh, you know, live as you want because um, you have to you can do what you like. Uh, anyway, so either the resurrection is real or it was made up. And only one of those two things can be true. There is no my truth for this because the roulette wheel either stops on black or red. And the wheel stops and your bet cannot be changed once the wheel comes to a halt. And by that, of course, is what I'm talking about when you draw your last breath. I think the, be the better metaphor here is... Um, the light switch about the resurrection is on or off because this choice puts uh, either Jesus to sleep or brings him to life. So um, again, St. Paul states the risk of this predicament uh, very openly and plainly. All is at stake for Paul in his bet. Paul's life, his death, the meaning of his life, his hope, his faith. Everything sits on the table with this question. And he says if he's chosen this strange and seemingly restrictive way of life, when he could be gorging at the bar and the buffet with those who bet on no, then he says that he is a fool to be pitied. And that's exactly right. Here's from uh, Corinthians chapter 15. Uh, he says, if Christ has not been raised, your faith is in vain. You're still in your sins. And if for this life only we have hoped in Christ, we are the most pitiable people of all. So if you bet that the resurrection is false, then you can ignore the commandments. If the resurrection is false, the parables are just forgettable fables. And you can get all of the ethical stuff from other writers. If the resurrection is false, um, then you need, you probably will want um, self-help books, not Jesus. And that's what I think people do. That's why self-help books are so popular. But, but if you accept the resurrection, then the commandments are required. The parables then become instructions for living. Every word Jesus said then explains the universe. So if that light switch is flipped on, then you cannot go to the bar. <laughs> you have to ask for faith. And many people like Paul and uh, Augustine, they never wanted to turn the light switch on. And I didn't want to turn the light switch on. I spent many years doing everything I could to avoid touching that light switch. But once the switch is on, you can't turn it off. In fact, maybe this whole choosing about the resurrection is not really your own choice in the end. I, I may have led you to this, to this part of the decision tree incorrectly because this is the one choice that seems to choose you. It's very strange. It's very, very strange. And I think perhaps you can, you can try to get here on your own if you try, if you ask. But faith is a gift. So yes, I, I did. I lied. This one is not a choice. It's not a choice that you can make. It seems to choose the people who have it. Um, the decision is a gift that comes to you as if made for you. 
But I will also say this, this is the one gift where it is not rude to ask. In fact, you should ask. You should say, um, you know, come Holy Spirit. Uh, Lord, help me understand these things. Teach me, uh, help my belief. Uh, what's the saying? Uh, Lord, I believe, help my unbelief. That's what um, one of the phrases is you can use when you're struggling. Um, this is the kind of gift you have to ask for. And then we have to come and stand in the empty tomb. And we must be like Mary Magdalene, peering into that empty space and, and make the decision of whether the light will be on or off.